As Erica mentioned, I am a research scientist in my day job. Um, and as you might guess for someone in that profession, my childhood was spent in wonder of this little playground we call Earth either discovering the oddities of biology from things I found in the backyard and plopped under a microscope, or experiencing the laws of motion firsthand from physics and chemistry experiments that went awry in the garage. God's creation fascinated me. And that fascination has just continued to grow, to grow as I now get to spend my days studying the beauty and complexity of God's creation in much more detail with much fancier equipment, and quite frankly, in safer laboratories <laughs> to do that. But that's why I jumped at the chance to go through the doctrine of creation with you. Not because I want you to share my love of science. Most people look at me with dread when I try to do that. Um, what I hope instead is that you will share my love of the creator of this incredible universe we have around us. That when you look up at the stars in the night sky, or listen to the water trickling down a creek, or even just eat an orange or banana food that comes with its own packaging, that your hearts will be tuned to sing the same praises as those in Revelation 4, verse 11. Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things. And by your will, they exist and were created. Because that verse, in a nutshell, is the biblical doctrine of creation. And we're going to unpack that this morning. But before we do, we need to make sure that we've got the right framework um, in mind, because there's a lot writing on this doctrine. Stephen Wellam, a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote, Every other doctrine of Christian theology is first grounded in the fact that the God who is there, the sovereign, personal, triune Lord, who has existed from all eternity, created this universe. And as such, everything and everyone is utterly dependent upon him and accountable to him. Without the Bible's presentation of God as creator and all that affirmation entails, the rationale and foundation for biblical Christianity is non-existent. So it's imperative we get this doctrine right. That means that we need to understand that the doctrine of creation is primarily about the God who creates rather than the nature of his creation. Here's Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Or Nehemiah 9, verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. Or Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. Throughout scripture, creation is consistently used to point us to God, to show who he is and what he's like. It's supposed to encourage us to praise and give thanks to this good creator, to confirm our trust in him as sovereign Lord over all that he's made, to humble us before him. And it's important we remember that, 
because discussions about the doctrine of creation can easily turn into heated debates about creation itself. So questions about the age of the earth, evolution, and dinosaur fossils take over, and God gets pushed off to the side. Now, we'll talk about how to think through some of these things towards the end of the talk, but they won't be our primary focus, because that, those questions are not what the Bible emphasizes when it talks about creation. What the Bible does emphasize is creation setting the stage for the incredible story revealed in its page. Pages, a story of God's creation being the outworking of his eternal plan. One he is even now directing to a specific goal. It's a story of God's good creation of all things, the fall of that creation through human sin and rebellion, the redemption of that creation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and the coming of a new creation that fulfills its original purpose and design. And so as we read through scripture, we rarely see creation language used by itself. Instead, it's linked with redemption and with who Jesus is and with the new creation that's coming. We see it in stories like Noah and the ark or in the Exodus when God brings his people out of Egypt. Read those stories and look at how God's rescue of his people echoes his work in creation. We see it in the words of the prophets where both judgment and hope are viewed through the lens of creation. Here's Isaiah chapter 45, verses seven and eight. God says, I form light and darkness. I make success and create disaster. I am the Lord who does all these things. Heavens sprinkle from above and let the skies shower righteousness. Let the earth open up so that salvation will sprout and righteousness will spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. We see it in Jesus, called the firstborn over all creation in Colossians 1, and the first fruits of a new creation in 1 Corinthians 15. We see it in Revelation, where God is hailed as creator, a statement of his divine identity, and we see the glorious end goal for his creation. All of this has to do with the picture that comes into our minds when we think about the doctrine of creation. For a lot of people, this picture is defined solely by Genesis 1 and 2. God created everything and he did it in six days. Then we argue about what the word day is supposed to mean. But this view is much too narrow. The doctrine of creation integrates all of scripture, which highlights that the God who creates is also the God who redeems and the God who restores. And he does them all with the same power for the same reason, his glory. These things cannot be separated. And this is the framework that we must use to properly understand the doctrine of creation and its implications for us. So here's the definition of the doctrine of creation we're gonna use this morning. It's in your handout. It's from Guy Richard, who's president of Reformed Theological Seminary. And he writes, the doctrine of creation states that God, who alone is uncreated and eternal, has formed and given existence to everything outside of himself. He did this from nothing by the word of his power, and all of it was very good. So we're gonna look at some biblical truths that form this doctrine of creation and their implications for us. Then, after we've laid that foundation, we'll talk about some of the differing views about creation.
All right, so section number one, biblical truths about the doctrine of creation. Number one, first and foremost, God created everything out of nothing. This means God didn't use other stuff to create the universe because there wasn't other stuff around. What this truth really points to is God's aseity, that is, his self-existence, his self-sufficiency in his own being. God alone has aseity. He alone is uncreated and eternal, and he is the one who gave existence to everything outside of himself. Now, this truth is a little abstract and that scripture doesn't explicitly state it in those words, but it certainly teaches it. It's where the Bible starts, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the phrase heavens and earth is commonly seen as what's called a merism. That's where two contrasting words are used to refer to the whole thing. So it means everything. In the beginning, God created everything. The beginning of what? The beginning of time, the beginning of space, the beginning of everything. God was there, and he created everything else. Scripture points to this in a number of other places. In Psalm 90, um, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Or Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. Your years have no end. Or Isaiah 40, verse 28. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. And the New Testament tells the same story. Romans 4, 17. Paul proclaims of the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. Or Hebrews eleven three. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now this includes the physical world, but it also includes the spiritual world as well. Nehemiah 9.6, you have made the heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host. Or Colossians 1.16, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. The visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all words used to describe heavenly beings. Or Revelation 10.6 speaks of the God who created heaven and what is in it. So the physical and the spiritual world are all part of the everything that God created out of nothing. Now this truth has some important theological implications for us. First, it underscores God's omnipotence. It is difficult to imagine a more stunning display of God's power than the universe springing into existence at his command. I study it for a living. It is incredibly complex. In grad school, I briefly studied proteins that were called chaperones. They go around making sure other proteins have the right shape, that they're folded correctly. If proteins don't have the right shape, they won't do what they're supposed to. Chaperones go around making sure everybody's got the right shape. If they don't, they fix them. It is incredible. There is infinite power and wisdom behind God's creation. And as we see in Romans 4, that infinite power that God uses in creation is the same infinite power he uses in salvation. 
If God can create something out of nothing, we can trust that he can bring those who are dead in their trespasses to a new life in Christ. Indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save. Isaiah 59, verse 1. This truth also highlights God's sovereignty. It establishes his ownership and lordship over absolutely everything because he is the one who made it. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. And as Wayne Gruden writes, if matter existed apart from God, then what inherent right would God have to rule over it or to use it for his glory? And what confidence could we have that every aspect of the universe will ultimately fulfill God's purposes if some parts of it were not created by him? And then finally, this truth signifies that creation is a free act of God. God was not compelled to create anything. He is sufficient in himself. I encourage you to listen to Haley Hayes' talk on the doctrine of the Trinity, where she brings this idea um, in more detail. God was free to create exactly what he wanted to. That means there is a purpose to his creation one that reveals itself in the story of the Bible. We are not accidents. We are fearfully and wonderfully made with planning, with intentionality. God created everything out of nothing. All right, truth number two. God is distinct from his creation and intimately involved in his creation. So scripture teaches there is a clear distinction between creator and his creation. Right? God did not make his creation with the same nature as himself. So God is eternal. Creation is temporal. God is all-powerful. Creation is very limited in power. All right? God intended for his creation to be something different from himself. The theological term for this is God's transcendence in regard to creation. He is infinitely above and beyond all that he created. So here's Psalm 113, verses 5 and 6. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? Or Isaiah 55, 9, you guys know this. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. Or John 8, 23. Jesus said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. God is distinct from all that he has made. But thankfully, scripture also teaches of God's eminence in regard to creation. He graciously remains in his creation, working and acting in it. I encourage you to listen to um, Haley Meyer's talk last month on the doctrine of God's providence um, for more insight into this. But here are some scriptural reminders. Here's Job 12, verse 10. In his hand, in God's hand, is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Or Acts 17, verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. God is wholly present and involved. In our worlds. Ephesians 4 6 sums it all up for us. God is above all and through all and in all. 
And we need a God who is all of that, which is most clearly displayed in Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. Truly human, so he could sympathize with us in our weakness and die in our place. But truly God, in order to bear the weight of the Father's wrath against sin and give righteousness and eternal life to all who repent and believe. The gospel only works and gives us hope if God is both transcendent and imminent with regard to his creation. All right, so God created everything. God is distinct from his creation, yet involved in it. And then truth number three, God created by his word. The phrase God said appears 10 times in Genesis 1 to describe his creative work. Then we get to Psalm 33, verse 9. For he spoke, and it came into being. He commanded, and it stood firm. Or in Hebrews 11:3 that we read earlier. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So God's word brings things into existence. He said, let there be light, and there was light. His word controls created things. He said, let the earth produce vegetation, and the earth produced vegetation. His word defines the function of his created things. He called the light day. He called the water seas, and that's what they were. So clearly, God's word is instrumental in his creation. But God could have just waved his hands and had things come into existence. Yet he is specifically described as speaking. Why? What is so important about him creating by his word? Because words reveal identity of the person. They express the mind, will, and character of that person. Earlier this week, my dad had a stroke. In God's kindness, it appears to be a minor one, and he's recovering. But that first night that we took him to the hospital, the words that he was speaking were just gibberish. We couldn't understand anything he was trying to say. It took us 20 minutes to figure out he needed to go to the bathroom. And I remember thinking, I have lost a little bit of my dad. I don't know who he is anymore because I can't understand him. He is not speaking words to me. But in God's kindness and providence, just a few hours later, he was talking normally again. And I could understand him, and I remember thinking, I have my dad back, because I can hear his words. He is speaking to me, and I can understand him. That is the same with our God. Theologian John Frame described it this way. He said, God is not only eternal, holy, all-powerful, and so on, but he expresses those qualities to us through something like human speech. God is a creator who speaks and makes himself known. And so it shouldn't be a surprise when we learn in John 1 that God's word is not a what, but a who. Jesus Christ, God's word in the flesh, who was with God in the beginning and who is God himself. Everything was created by him, through him, and for him. It is by this word all things hold together, Colossians 1.17. It is in this word God is bringing everything together, both things in heaven and on things on earth, Ephesians 1.10, and to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, Colossians 1.20. It is through faith in this word that we are called a new creation in 2 Corinthians 
God's word in Christ is the source, the power, the goal, the meaning of all creation. God created by his word. Truth number four, God created everything good. Another constant refrain we hear in Genesis 1 is God saw all that he made as good. God is good and the creation he brings into existence reflects his goodness. Now the Hebrew word translated in English to good has a variety of meanings. Um, depending on the context. One commonly used in the Old Testament is the sense of functioning properly. So good can mean that creation is working as God meant it to. It's fulfilling its assigned purpose. So from the beginning, God tells us creation does what he intends for it to do. But good can also mean that God is pleased with his creation. Here's Psalm 104, verse 31. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Or Proverbs 8, 31, speaking of wisdom, says, I was rejoicing in his inhabited world, delighting in the children of Adam. And even though sin came into the world from his creatures, from us, through our rebellion against our creator, and now there are thorns and weeds and evil and creation groans in anticipation of being redeemed. It is still good in God's sight. Here's 1 Timothy 4.4. 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. God has given us permission to delight in his creation. There is an incredible richness in it for us to enjoy and to use responsibly. Theologian Herman Bovink summed it up this way. He wrote, this world is good because it answers to the purpose God has set for it. It is neither the best nor the worst, but it is good because God called it so. It is good because it is serviceable, not to the individual human being, but to the revelation of God's perfections. And to the person who regards it so, it is also good because it makes known to him the God whom to know is eternal life. God's creation is good. All right, the final truth, number five, God created to show his glory. God made the universe to display his glory. Here's Psalm 19, one through two. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. Or Isaiah 6, 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It is not because God needed anything, but out of a desire to give generously. All that God created reveals his greatness, his omnipotence, his wisdom, his goodness, his love, and all of his other attributes. And because a picture is worth a thousand words, here are some testaments to God's glory in his creation. So this first picture, this is called, called the Eagle Nebula. A nebula is a giant cloud of dust and gas in space. This particular one is 40 quadrillion miles away from us. Those towers that you see going up, those are called pillars of creation because inside those regions is where tiny little baby stars get made. 
So that's what happens in some nebulas. That's where stars are made. Oh, God is great. But if you like to get a little bit closer to home, this next picture, these are called the Rainbow Mountains in Zhangye National Geopark. Um, in China, Zhangye National Geopark. Um, they're different colors because iron and other minerals that are in the rocks. If you look at the next one, and this next one, those clouds, or the mountain, those are called lenticular clouds. They form that way because of the disruption of the airflow due to the terrain on the mountaintops. Little tiny UFOs just flying over the mountains there. But my favorite is what's called vol volcano lightning. This is rare, but it can form when ash that comes out of a volcano rub together enough to generate enough static electricity to produce a lightning bolt. What an amazing God we have. God created to show his glory and our response should be to worship him. Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things. And by your will they exist and, we, and we're created. And that, my friends, is the doctrine of creation and our response should be, response should be to worship this good creator. All right, so now that we've laid the foundation for the doctrine of creation, we're going to consider some differing views of creation. And the first one that we're going to look at is how this doctrine of creation influences the way that we see the world and our role in it. So there's a tremendous difference between a Christian worldview with God as creator, who is both transcendent and imminent in his creation, and all of of what that implies, and other worldviews, including false religions, that alter this doctrine in some way. And there are four common ones that are listed on your sheet. So number one is naturalism or materialism. Right, this claims there is no creator. Right, this is the predominant secular view. The universe is all there is and arose from an impressive series of random events. But as a result of that, life has no design, there's no purpose. Nothing matters. We are what we are. And the universe is a cold, meaningless place that doesn't care whether anyone lives or dies. Even advocates of this view know that it can only end in despair. Nobody can live in a universe like that. No one believes love is nothing. Suffering is nothing. Justice is nothing. This universe is God's universe and he rules it with perfect wisdom and absolute power. He created it to reflect his glory and stilled it with value and purpose, and he's at work even now redeeming it to that end. All right. Number two is pantheism, which claims that the universe and God are one and the same. This is the basis of a lot of Eastern religions, Taoism, Buddhism, Hinduism, and some New Age mysticism. Put this so the goal of life, then, is to become one with everything. But oddly enough, the tendency to deify nature has the effect of just denigrating individual human beings. All right? We worship the universe, and humans become less and less important. C.S. Lewis wrote about the fatal picture of this view. He wrote, the pantheist and the Christian agree that we are all intimately related to God. 
But the Christian defines this relation in terms of maker and made, whereas the pantheist says we are all parts of him or contained in him. He writes, because of this fatal picture, pantheism concludes that God must be equally present in what we call evil and what we call good, and therefore indifferent to both. To lose God's transcendence is to lose any hope that he will overcome evil in this world. Paul gives his response to this worldview in Acts 17, verses 22 through 31. So I encourage you to maybe read that later if you want to know um, the Christian response to that. Number three is deism, which affirms God created everything, and he's distinct from his creation, but he is not involved in his creation. So he just leaves it to run on its own. This is the view of a lot of founding fathers of the U.S., so Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and so on. But without God's involvement, humans are left to figure things out themselves. Want to know about God? Serve what he's created and deduce from that. Want to know right from wrong? Reason it out for yourself. You can read the book of Judges to see how that works out for people. What's the meaning of life? Try and be nice to people, avoid eating fat, read a good book every now and then. If you grew up in the 80s and like Mighty Pothine, you got that reference. But the idea is that you can feel spiritual, with this view of deism, you can feel spiritual by believing in God. And then kind of avoid all those consequences of being accountable to this God. Christians can become practical deists when we live our lives without any kind of genuine prayer, worship, or trust in God. Paul also gives his response to this worldview in Acts 17. All right, so the final um, opposing worldview is dualism. And that's this idea there are two equal and opposite powers in the universe, good and evil. This is the Star Wars worldview, right? There's a light side and a dark side to the force and they're forever battling it out for supremacy. Who will win? Who knows? After nine movies, we still don't have an answer. <laughs> Dualism is the basis of religions like Gnosticism or Zoroastrianism, which has this idea there's a god of good and a god of evil. They're constantly battling it out for your soul, and you have to pick, pick a side. Now, Gnosticism crept into the early church, dividing the spirit into good and the physical world into evil. So from their view, the world is just without worth and beyond saving. But this led them to not accepting Jesus as fully human, and so they started looking for salvation by other means. Funnily enough, they did what deists tried to do. They tried to reason it out for themselves. Several New Testament letters warn us not to do this. God created a good world for the good of his creatures, and evil has not always existed, nor is it all-powerful? It came from God's creatures. And that means that it is subject to the absolute sovereignty of God. But I hope what you'll see is from these different views is that there could be a real harm that comes with people's wrong ideas about creation. One that can lead to a lot of despair. But a right understanding of the biblical doctrine of creation can correct, can correct these views and give us the perspective that God intends for us to have. All right, so our last issue that we're gonna talk about 
um, centers around how to interpret Genesis 1. Um, and how old do you think the earth is? Now here is UBC's statement of faith regarding creation. He writes, we believe that there is one and only one living and true God, a personal and intelligent spirit whose name is Lord, the maker, preserver, and supreme ruler of heaven and earth. And that's it, right? You are not required to hold one particular view of Genesis 1 to be a member of this church. So we should exercise grace and humility with each other over this. All right, there are a variety of interpretations from faithful Christians about how we should interpret Genesis 1. And we're just going to go over a few of them here today. The first one is called theistic evolution. So this is the belief that evolution occurs, like biologists describe it, um, but under the direction of God. Though there is a wide spectrum about how much God is involved um, in this view. So Genesis 1 doesn't tell us how God created the universe, just that he did it. This view is hotly debated among Christians. Um, and there are some significant challenges to this view. One, scripture presents a clear purposefulness to God's creation with him intimately involved with it. And that seems at odds with the randomness that's required of evolution. Um, and number two, depending on how much you think God intervened, um, evolution rejects the special creation of humans. Um, so there is no literal Adam and Eve. They're just simply representatives of the human race in this view. But Genesis 2 is awfully specific about the creation of Adam and Eve. There's careful attention to detail and personal care in creating them as God's image bearers that is not written about the rest of creation. Also, Paul describes sin and death coming through one man, Adam, and redemption through one man, Christ, in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. And so if a literal Adam doesn't exist, Paul's argument about how salvation works doesn't make sense. Um, but as I said, there are faithful Christians who hold to some part of this view. Um, number two is called a literary framework view. Um, so in this view, the days in Genesis 1 are topical rather than chronological. Um, it's based on noticing that they can be divided in two groups, forming and filling. Um, with days one through three having their counterparts in days four through six. So in day one, light and dark are formed, and in day four, they're filled with the sun, moon, and stars. Day two, sky and waters are formed, and in day five, they're filled with birds and fish. Day three, dry land and vegetation is formed, and in day six, it's filled with humans and animals. This is a great way to sidestep debates about the age of the earth and has some neat insights into the text, um, though it does so by treating Genesis 1 as poetry. Um, the main challenge to this view is that Genesis 1 seems to strongly suggest there is an intentional chronological progression to it, climaxing with the creation of humans on day six in God's image, and then resting on day seven. Um, there are also some concerns about treating Genesis 1 too um, figuratively um, with this view. Number three is the day-age view. And so in this view, the days in Genesis 1 are long periods of time rather than 24 hours. This appeals to the fact that the word day can have a variety of meanings. 
Um, the challenge to this is that the days in Genesis are numbered in succession and have a morning and an evening assigned to them. And so all of that fits better with a standard 24-hour day. But the word day is used in context of an undefined period in the very next chapter of Genesis. Ch Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created and the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. So we should be careful about insisting that the days had to be 24 hours long and I will not hear otherwise to it. Now this view sometimes gets adjusted to an analogy day um, view that holds that the days in Genesis 1 are God's work days and are meant to be analogous to but not the same as the human work day. Um, this is based on an understanding that the Sabbath commandment in Exodus 20 is given as an analogy between God's pattern of creation work um, and rest and human, human's pattern of work um, and rest. That view is, also, um, is often held by Christians who hold to an old earth um, view. Uh, number four is the gap theory. That holds that there is a gap between verse one and verse two in Genesis one of some indeterminate amount of time where some catastrophic event occurs that leaves the earth without form and void in verse two, perhaps due to Satan's rebellion. And then the rest of the chapter describe a subsequent recreation of that. Well, this is one way to reconcile a literal reading of the Bible um, with scientific data. So fossils dated millions of years ago and dinosaurs get put in the first creation, which gets destroyed, while the second creation is more recent and you can read verses 3 through 31 literally. And Genesis 1 does not specify a time between verses 1 and verse 2. Um, however, there are no other passages in Scripture that talk about a previous creation. And that seems like a big thing to leave out. Um, also, according to Hebrew scholars, the structure of verse 2 indicates that the earth was without form at the time indicated by verse 1, not that it became without form. Um, number five is historic creationism. So in this view, the universe and everything in it was made in verse one. And then the rest of the chapter describes the preparation of Eden in six literal days. So it's based on the understanding that the word beginning in verse one marks the starting point of God's creation, but it doesn't specify a time frame for how long it took. And then when the story picks up in verse 2, the word earth doesn't refer to a planet, but to a specific section of land that is uninhabitable. And then verses 3 through 31 speak of preparing that land, preparing Eden, um, into one that's suitable for Adam and Eve in six literal days. Now this view fits in nicely with some biblical themes in the Bible, kind of following the storyline from the original Eden to the final Eden in Revelation. Um, it reads biblical terms as they're read later in scripture. Um, it takes into account that Genesis 1 is addressing ancient Israelites in terms of things they can understand around them. Um, and both old earth and young earth creationists can hold this view. You can pick whatever time you want between <laughs> verses one and two. Um, the challenges usually arise from debates about whether death of plants and animals could have occurred before the fall. Um, and also the exact meaning of the Hebrew words used in Genesis. 
Um, other scholars read the Hebrew text a little bit differently from that. Other scholars just read the Hebrew text differently from how historic, historical creationists see it. Um, and then finally, we have young earth creationism. God created everything, including Adam and Eve, in six literal 24-hour days. At face value, this is the most natural reading of the texts. This view often gets coupled with genealogies given in Genesis to put the age of the earth around 10,000 years. The main challenge is that scientific data keeps pointing to the earth and the universe being billions of years old using a variety of dating techniques. And that seems like a huge difference in time frame there. Um, young earth creationists will usually explain that discrepancy in two ways. One is what they call the flood factor. So the flood in Genesis 6 through 9 significantly altered the state of the earth, thereby affecting scientific data or dating of the fossils. Um, the other is what they call a mature creation, where God created a grown-up universe, thereby affecting scientific dating techniques. Most people take for granted that Adam and Eve were born as adults, or created as adults. Maybe the rest of creation was that way. Um, however, that just tends to lead to different science Bible debates rather than just answering um, everything to, to people's satisfaction to that. Um, but the point of all of this is that there's a variety of possible interpretations of Genesis 1 um, among faithful Christians. Um, and so the bottom line is that there is room for disagreement here. This should not be something that divides us over this. You can have a different view of Genesis 1 and still be a member in good standing here at UBC. You know, it, it's easy to look at this doctrine of creation as, you know, this academic exercise, kind of honing our apologetic skills so we can defend ourselves against skeptics and Christians alike to accept our views. But there are huge implications to this doctrine. The way we perceive God, the way we look at ourselves, the world around us, all have their roots in this doctrine. It shows God is worthy of our love, trust, and worship. He is the source of all life. He has revealed his splendor, majesty, beauty, and skill to us. He is king of his creation, ruling with perfect wisdom and power. So if you don't take anything else away from this talk, I hope that you will remember this, that creation shows God is worthy of our worship. It shows that we are not independent creatures with the right to do whatever we want. We are created, and so we are owned. That is the very nature of creating things. We belong to God. We are accountable to him. But that also means we have meaning and value, one imparted to us by our maker, not the world's, not other people. Our identity is found only in him. It also shows that the world around us has significance to it. It has value and purpose and is moving toward a goal God has established for it from the very beginning. It is a theater not only of God's creative work, but his ongoing redemptive work in it. And that is because the doctrine of creation is ultimately about Christ. The word of God there at the beginning, through whom the Father made all things. And he entered creation as a plan for the right time, Ephesians 1.9.
in order to redeem his people from sin and provide a way of regeneration for his people to become a new creation. Because instead of displaying the glory of our creator, we have rebelled against him, bringing evil into his good world. And so Jesus came, living the life we should have lived, suffering the death we deserved, reconciling everything on earth and in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Then God, who creates out of nothing, uses that same power to raise Jesus from the dead. And that same new life, a new creation, is offered to all who repent and believe. And we wait for Jesus to return, to experience this new creation in full, purified from every trace of sin, fulfilling the purpose God had for it from the beginning. We pray with me to this good God. Our gracious Father, how countless are your works, Lord. In wisdom you have made all things by your word, upheld them by your power, governed them by your will. Your goodness is boundless. All creatures wait on you, are supplied by you, and are satisfied in you. So we praise you, Father, together with all of your creation, for it testifies to your greatness, your splendor, your steadfast character. It reveals your lordship and control over all things, your authority over all things, ruling over it all as a good and wise king. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You alone are worthy of worship. And we praise you because you're not content just to be a good creator, but also a merciful redeemer, setting your creation free from its bondage to sin and decay into the glorious freedom of your children. You gave Jesus to us and for us. Oh, how we praise you for the immeasurable riches of the gospel and the limitless, limitless wonder of your grace. May we hear you speaking louder than ever to us in the things you have made and in the one you have sent. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.